Welcome back to Clinician's Brief, the podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser, and we're in Reno, Nevada for the Wild West Vet Show. We're sitting down with some of the session speakers here to get the inside track on their lectures. We're going to learn the tips and the tricks that you guys can put into practice immediately back at home if you didn't get a chance to come out to Wild West Vet Show. If by chance you didn't, make sure you don't miss it next year. We have had so much fun. We have so many incredible speakers. And right now I'm sitting down with one more incredible speaker who I'm very excited to talk to. Dr. Rebecca Windsor. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited to have you. And and so we're going to talk to you a little bit more about the lectures that you're doing out here. Crazy Cats, Neurologic or Normal. I absolutely love the title name there. And the top three neurologic conditions of pediatric and geriatric companion animals. But before we get all into that, I kind of want a little talk about your neurology background. Tell me a little bit about where you came from and how you got here. Sure. Well, I went to vet school at UC Davis um, and then went to North Carolina, which sounds like where you're from. I spent my internship year there at, at NC State. Yeah, go and with then, that. I know. And then uh, came back to Davis for my residency. So very um, Davis, Davis bred, which yeah. was a great place to be for, for neuro. Uh, met my husband there, who's a surgeon. And then we hopped around quite a bit um, working at different private practices until we ultimately ended up um, at Wheat Ridge outside of Denver, which is our, our heart place. Um, oh. I think going to be our permanent home. So we work at a busy specialty practice there in Wheat Ridge. Got two little boys and just busy and loving life living out I there. love so, it. Yep. So tell me, are you um, one of the veterinarians who always knew they wanted to be a veterinarian or later in life? A little bit later. I think I was always interested in medicine, but I thought for a while that I might want to do some type of human medicine. Yeah. So I was a neuroscience major in um, undergrad, so I was always interested in neuro. And then I started working at a couple vet clinics um, when I was in college just to kind of help pay my way through yeah. and realized how much I love working with animals instead. So I just kind of changed my course a bit and decided to go to veterinary school and knew pretty early I wanted to be a neurologist. So okay. probably within my first year of, of vet school, I knew I wanted to be a neurologist. So got in with the neuro team at Davis pretty early to be able to kind of help guide me along my path to become a neurologist. So That's outstanding. That's outstanding. And we're lucky that you did because you've got some incredible talks out here, some really important information. And I want to talk about both of these talks because I think overall they're very important. And I think to some extent, at least for me in in my experience in general practice, neurology can be a little intimidating in general, right? But but when we look at these two subjects here, first of all, cats independently, and then we look at pediatrics and geriatrics, we've kind of narrowed this down to a group of patients that can be a little bit more difficult to assess in general, right? Sure. Yeah especially cats. I think it's funny whenever we give neuro lectures, I feel like cats are oftentimes not represented at all. Yeah. And I know that I do a lot of um, talks and I hardly ever talk about cats, but I'd say probably like at least 10, 15% of the cases that I see are cats. And there's probably a lot of cats that are going into their vets that just aren't ever coming to neurologists. So very common for cats to get neurological problems. And it's tricky because they're hard to examine. <laughs> you know, they don't yeah. like to be examined. And so sometimes it can be really difficult to kind of figure out, you know, even where they localize to, much less what's going on with them. So I think it's great to be able to give them their, you know, own focused lecture here. Mm-hmm. So I think it, that's the, the really interesting part because I feel like that can be an area where it is hard to get a comfort level with the assessment because if mm-hmm. you just have this little tucked up kitty who won't move and I mean how can you yep. really assess neurologic condition except for I think of those like you know hyperplastic kitties who right. are like falling all over right. the place right. who right. across the room you know what right. they are right. so I feel like if it's not one end of the spectrum or the other it can be right. really hard right it can be I, I do a lot of my exams in cats by not touching them at all okay I'll usually just have them kind of walking around the room so you can kind of assess a lot of things about 
gate, mentation, vision by not even touching them at all. And I spend the first part of my exam with all, all cat owners, really just getting a good history from them about what they're seeing at home. I think they're your best tool, honestly, to being able to yeah. figure out what's going on with their cat because uh, usually they're going to be spending a lot of time with them. They know what changes they've seen at home. And so you can get a good idea of history progression, you know, based on what the owners are seeing. So Yeah, you know, it's funny. We've had several interviews out here at Wild West and of all of the lectures we've done um, and, and all of the authors and, and speakers we've talked to and all of the spanning topics, right? So we're all over the place. The physical exam uh, and really the patient history mm-hmm. has come down to be like the most important thing Absolutely. in all of the different areas, whether it was dentistry we talked about, whether it was behavior we talked about, and here we are with neurology talking and mm-hmm. in, in all of the different specialties we've talked to, that thorough patient history. And again, as a technician, and we know mm-hmm. that a lot of our support staff are doing this patient history. It just, I love driving home that point that it's really like what's happening at home and that we, even if that is the least hands-on, maybe least medical thing we do, mm-hmm. it's the most detective mm-hmm. work we do in a day. It's yep. so important. We can't forget that. Yep. I spend more time in an appointment talking to the owner than they do looking at the patient usually yeah. because yeah. it's so important. And I bet your clients really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. So for both of these lectures, you highlight and you kind of put these in wheelhouses, right? Most common, somewhat common, and rather rare conditions in each group, whether we're talking about, you know, cats, pediatrics, and geriatrics. We kind of separate these out and we talk about how different these cases may be, but how differently do they present? So I think it really depends. I think cats are a little bit easier because they tend to get things that are really acute, like strokes and things that are more chronically progressive. So that's oftentimes how I'll think about figuring out diagnoses or differentials. It's not necessarily from most common to least common. It's what's the history? What's the progression? Do they have pain to kind of narrow down which sorts of categories of of diseases are going to have those different symptoms? And then within that, what's going to be kind of most common to least common when I have those discussions, you know, with the owner. So, so it's kind of coming back again to that history, you right. know, and the progression is, I think that's going to be more important, honestly, than how common they are. So fair. And, and then what about in their presentation? Mm-hmm. You know, when you're working through these different neurologic cases in any neurologic case, what do you do or, or how, what is, what does the protocol look like that leads you most directly to the assessment? And then of course the diagnostics that you're going to do, what helps you develop that protocol? Sure. So again, kind of a, getting a good localization of where their problem is, is coming from and then getting your good kind of differential diagnostic list. I think for me, unfortunately, a lot of times I'm going to have to do advanced imaging in order to be able to figure out, you know, exactly what's going on. But in some situations, especially if you're dealing with cats, there's different infectious diseases that you can test for. When you're dealing with really, really young animals, there's a lot of congenital things you're going to have high on the list. So sometimes you'll be able to see things just with plain x-rays or even ultrasounds. So yeah, I think it can it can be tricky though. You sure. Know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's overwhelming because when I think about my neurologic cases, mm-hmm. it's like, well, it can be any of these 50 things. And so how do you kind of create your rule out practice? Mm -hmm. Like, how do you decide where you're going to start? Are we looking for the, obviously the most common? Are you sometimes going, well, let's rule out the the worst case scenario, the best case scenario. How do you approach this rule out? Yeah. So usually you're going to go most common, you know, to least common. So I think oftentimes things are in tiers. You know, there are things that we see every day, you know, that are going to be really common. Then you have things that you see them, but not that often. And then things that are really rare. So I'm not kind of hunting down the really rare things unless we're really, you 
you know, have that high on the list because of breed or something like that. Sometimes the really rare things are harder to diagnose as well. They're oftentimes degenerative diseases, storage diseases, things that you don't necessarily have a specific test for. And so sometimes, you know, when you're doing diagnostics, you're almost having to rule out things that are structural first, things right. that you can see, right? Yeah. Things that are putting pressure, things that are taking up space. And then um, once you kind of rule those things out, you're left with, okay, what can cause problems that isn't causing any pressure? So things that are inflammatory and then getting down to things that are inside the cells, you know, that you can't yeah. see. So, so as far as diagnostics are concerned, you know, luckily a lot of the things that we deal with are structural things. So there are things that you're going to be able to see, but I have a lot of conversations with people about these are all the things that your animal does not have that yeah. we cannot see. And these are some of the things that, that could be going on that, that we can't just point to. You know? I think, I think it emphasizes the importance too in like creating the expectation from the beginning and just Absolutely. talking about how this is presenting is similar to so many different things and, and I guess setting up the expectation for the client from the beginning that says we may end up doing a lot of testing and a lot of things that we never get a definitive diagnosis of what it absolutely is but we can know what it absolutely isn't but right. that is, expectation right. is going to be really important. Right. It's hard and I think a lot of it is how you present it you know and so you, you tell them what are the most likely things you tell them a lot of things that you you hope that you don't find and then if you do a scan and you don't find those bad things then you could be like guess what this is amazing I can tell you your dog doesn't have cancer your dog doesn't have an abscess and go through all those things and so instead of presenting in a way like oh, I'm so sorry you know yeah. we spent all this money and we didn't find anything it's not that you didn't find anything you found a lot of things that they don't have you know and then it really kind of narrowed down more specifically you've crossed off 20 differentials out of the 25 yeah. or whatever um, to be able to tell them more but it is hard I think people are visual right so they like to see things. So oftentimes if you can point to a disc herniation or point to a tumor and they can see it, it's easier for them to, to conceptualize. I think oftentimes inflammatory conditions, degenerative conditions where you might not necessarily see anything, it's harder for them to wrap their heads around. Sure, absolutely. And, and it's easy for us to forget, you know, most people don't have that medical background. So something that sounds so, of course, this is just what it is and we're yeah. happy and it makes, it's great news that we yeah. have found nothing right, right. for somebody who's put out a lot of money and time and who their their pet, their baby, their, their, their companion isn't acting or feeling right and normal right. and they can't fix it. Right. And there's a big emotional component there. And, but I, I, I love when I get to talk to practitioners and kind of, you know, spread the word to other clinicians out there of helping them to develop that message and to develop that expectation. Because sure. you're right, I think sometimes it does come from an I'm really, I'm so sorry standpoint as opposed to being like, this is great news. Mm -hmm. So I think that approach is, is really important. But I kind of want to go back to a little thing you were talking about in terms of, you know, the tangible things, the things we can show them and put our hands on. I mean, I, when I think about neurology and I think about producing something that is tangible for them to look at. I think of big machines and I think of big budgets, mm -hmm. right, for my clients and the right. clinic. And I, I know the reality is why we're seeing more and more compliance, more insured pets. This kind of testing is not possible for a lot of our clients. So, you know, I guess specialty care may not be possible or this advanced testing might be possible. And, you know, I, I guess I just kind of wonder how you, how you guide practitioners through that. How do they get a really reliable diagnosis? If they can, we've already talked about rule out as opposed to, but... Does it always, is it always going to take MRI, CT, or specialty mm -hmm. care to get there? Or can we be feeling pretty comfortable and confident in the GP? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on how comfortable they are with neuro exams. So, you know, we got a lot of clients that we know it's not financially feasible for them to do advanced diagnostics, but most of them can pay for a consult, you yeah. know? And so what I'll usually say is if you've got a neurologist in the area, even if you know your client isn't going to go forward with advanced diagnostics, at least get an exam. Okay. Because I can't tell you how many patients I've had come in with the pre 
pre-tax that they have one condition and I examine them and realize I think it's something completely different. Okay. And you have a completely different list of differentials and, and potential you know, plan for, for your client. So I would say there's a large percentage of patients that I see where they come into it and I know that they're not going to be able to do an MRI, but at least I can do an exam, get a localization, and then go through the owner. Like these are the most likely things that we're dealing with and this is what we're going to try. You know? yeah. So usually I never say, you know, hey, because I don't have a diagnosis, we have no options. Yeah. You know? It's like, okay, this is what I think is what's going on. This is the combination of medications we're going to try. And then we're going to recheck, you know, and see how things are going. And if they're progressing quickly, we recheck them faster. If they're progressing more slowly, maybe it's a couple weeks out. So I think just at least having a good idea of localization, what, how you would expect those different diseases to get better or worse. And then you can almost use what they do over time. So if you start an animal on a steroid, for example, and they don't get any better, probably not a condition that's inflammatory yeah. or causing a lot of edema. So you can cross some of those things out. So a lot of it is just is is knowing you know what you expect the diseases to do, yeah. and that's where I think sometimes if you have the option of having a specialist involved, it's helpful because they just have more more knowledge. With that, um, we have a lot of RDVMs who live out in the mountains where yeah. their patients can't come down, and oftentimes they'll just email us a summary and they'll send us videos. You know, this is what the dog is looking like. What do you think is going on? And obviously, it's helpful to be able to see them ourselves. But in some cases, we can't. And I say, hey, you know, you think these are seizures? I think this is actually neck pain. You know, okay. and it completely changes. You know, the differentials and treatment plan and stuff. So I would say for a lot of these guys, we still have a lot of options. You know, of ways to try to treat them. And the other thing I often tell, you know, times tell owners too, is that for a lot of these things, especially if it's something that's progressing pretty quickly, we might not have had a lot of options anyway. And yeah. so don't feel guilty if you can't spend, you know, two thousand dollars on an MRI, where we might have done that to put them on pain meds and steroids, which I can do right now anyway. You know, and just see how they're how they're progressing. So. I love that. Mm-hmm. I think it's such a, an encouraging point to hear and to think about, you know, send them anyway, mm-hmm. even if you know that. Because I, I do feel like in my head and in my experiences, it's it's kind of, I've thought to myself, well, why? Why spend the time or the money or, or have them go if we know they're not going to be able to follow all the way through with those diagnostics? And, you know, one thing I do really love about veterinary medicine is that community that I've seen so many specialists mm-hmm. like yourself who have tons of knowledge, tons of experience who are like, yeah, no, just email me. I want to, mm-hmm. I'll look at it. I'll help you. We'll talk through it. And Mm-hmm. It's such an important thing in our profession. It's so important to do to give us that accessibility. And I mean, we have the we have the ability to crowdsource, right? In, right? in this day and age, you can get an email, you can get a video, you got you can even you know Skype in or something if you absolutely had to. And I love that you guys are willing to do that, and I really appreciate that. So I guess to that point, how can us in GP do a better job of referring them to you? What are the things mm-hmm. we should be doing ahead of time? What do you say? Oh, this is the perfect package. I love to get with mm-hmm. a referral client. Yeah. So I think having had a good discussion with the owners in advance, you know, of, again, possible differentials, possible outcomes. I think also having a good idea of, of all the stuff that we can do. I think one of the problems with neurology specifically, I think that there's a, a preconceived notion out there that a lot of these things are really bad and we don't have any options, so why bother? Yeah. And that's just not the case, you know. So so we'll have some owners, obviously, that can't do things, but there's a lot of owners who can and they never even get to us because they're not kind of guided, you know, along the right path. I think we always really appreciate it when they've had a good systemic workup. So if I have a dog that's coming in for suspected tumor but hasn't even had blood work, yeah. you know, we do blood work and x-rays and the dog's got mets everywhere, you know, that could have saved them a trip, you yeah. know. Um, so having that kind of good systemic evaluation is always, you know, really helpful. And then having the owners kind of educated about what to expect, you know, and that oftentimes we might recommend MRI and this is kind of how much it costs. And But what I always tell people too is, you know, I became a neurologist so I could help animals that have neurological diseases. I didn't come a neurologist to do MRIs. So that's yeah. not 
yeah. the point. So I would say probably at least 30%, if not more, sometimes of my patients who are not going to be able to do, you know, any advanced diagnostics. We can still help, you know, those patients. So I think a lot of it with uh, our uh, referring community is, is letting them know the value of coming to see us, just seeing us and talking to us in the knowledge base that we have, not necessarily that you're going to see them, they're going to rec- recommend an MRI. And if you can't do it, they're not going to help you. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, and I love that. And I think it's important because you're right. I think outside of the situation, if you're not in it and seeing it, it feels like, well, we see it as so limiting because we don't have the experience and knowledge you do. I love that I didn't become a neurologist to, to do MRIs. That's right. Because your support staff should be doing them if you've got proper training and utilization, right? We're yeah, doing yeah, them yeah, and yeah. we became technicians to do MRIs. Yep, yep. So we can all be happy. Everybody right? can come work with me and we'll get more done. Let's do it. I love it. No, I think that's so great. And, and, and again, I think it's important for us to send our patients to you with all the information you could, like you said, I mean, if there was something we could have ruled out in our practice, but also a clear expectation of, of what to expect when they get there. And that's why these conversations I feel like are so important. So kind of going into um, the age-related neurologic conditions, it seems to me, at least me, a tough conversation with clients because, because of these unknowns, especially with the restrictions we've kind of already talked about. You know, when it comes to discussing unknown outcomes with clients, how do we preserve their confidence when we don't necessarily feel confident about the outcome? And, mm-hmm. and, and I want to say confidence and comfort kind of together because I think for us, from a medical standpoint, we feel, we know, we understand. Mm-hmm. But how do you coach clients through that? And we and we have talked a little bit about that, setting that ex- expectation. But when it gets really hard, when the client gets mad or they're upset or they're having that emotional response to not mm-hmm. having an answer, mm-hmm. what's your advice to clinicians? Yeah, I mean, I think I always approach every single client, every single patient with my first you know, communication being empathetic, you know, so I walk into every single exam room, just meeting the client, meeting the pet and saying, I'm so sorry, this must be so hard for you. And that really kind of breaks down that barrier and really just talk to them like a person. Like I don't talk to them like I'm a doctor and you're a client. I really get down on their level. I talk to them at their level and I'm honest. So what I've realized a lot, I think as I've gone through my career is that it's not better for people to try to paint a better picture and then have them be disappointed pointed, you know, it's better just to be honest, you know, and so I usually just say, you know, these are the possibilities. This could be really, really bad, or this could be be good. We just don't often know. And it's hard because we've had animals that come in where you're almost positive they're going to have something really bad, and then you work them up, and they don't. You know, they have something that's fixable. So it can be difficult. What I often tell, sometimes tell people, too, especially if they have geriatric patients, is that oftentimes if it's not just a primary neurological issue, if they've got other stuff going on, on, those things can all contribute. And so how far are you going to go in a 12-year-old dog that might have a spinal issue, but then also has some significant metabolic issue or arthritis or things like that? So just letting them know it's okay. You know, you don't have to feel like you have to do all of these things in your geriatric patient. So so I think that's helpful for them. And then if we're dealing with something that is, again, kind of more rapidly progressive, like a tumor maybe, is letting them know that if they're declining quickly, chances are we don't have a lot of options anyway. So so don't feel guilty if you couldn't MRI, you know, your 12-year-old dog to find an osteosarcoma in the spine because yeah. probably we wouldn't have done much for it anyway. Things that we can treat tend to move more slowly, you know, and be less painful. So just kind of letting them know that they don't need to feel any sort of guilt. I think a lot of them come in, especially with the older patients, because they've had these dogs forever, yeah. right? They're a family member yeah. and um, they feel like they're letting them down, you yeah. know, if they're not spending their money or doing all these things. And I just let them know that's okay. They don't 
don't need to do that. So yeah, I think it's just relating to people and empathizing with people. That's mm-hmm. so, I mean, it's so good and you're right. It's mm-hmm. so important to, to just, I love that you take the time to say this must be really hard for you. Cause I think sometimes owners maybe do feel unacknowledged in that moment. Mm-hmm. It, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of emotion. And I think sometimes we avoid the emotion, mm-hmm. right? Because we can't get in it. Cause if mm-hmm. we get into that emotion, we're going to feel our own emotion, which mm-hmm. is absolute, you know, mm-hmm. sadness and frustration as well. And right. so I think an area, of course, our profession struggles with a lot, but I think you're right. If you can be comfortable in the empathy and be comfortable, mm-hmm. I, I just think it's important. I want to talk to you a little bit because we, you have the lecture, crazy cats, neurologic or normal. And I, I don't think we necessarily think about, I refer to them as our, our more spicy kitties. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think we think of those behavioral aspects as neurologic. So talk a little bit about that to me. Can mm-hmm. you tell me from your lecture a little bit of how, how are we thinking about that when we see these behavioral issues and, and maybe in the form of aggression even, mm-hmm. we should be thinking neurologic. Yeah, I think oftentimes it, it probably isn't unless there's been a change. I think for a lot of those guys, it is probably a primary behavioral issue. So, but I think sometimes there's a fine line. I think that oftentimes we say something isn't quote unquote neurological because you don't have a structural abnormality to cause it. I think a lot of these behavioral issues are biochemical neurological abnormalities. You know, so for a lot of cats that are coming in with aggression or feline hyperesthesia syndrome is a common referral that I'll get okay. um, to try to rule out a primary neurological cause of these cats that are scratching and biting, you know, themselves. And they probably do have a biochemical imbalance. And so the big difference with those guys too is that they usually have their symptoms for a lot longer. They're usually more chronic if it's behavioral stuff versus when it's a a primary like brain tumor or something like that, usually you'll have a cat who hasn't had those issues and then they develop them, you know, and they progress, you know, over time. So cats are really, really difficult though. Sometimes they can have seizures manifest as aggression, you know, as well. And so so they're really, really challenging as neurological patients because they, they're very different than dogs, you know, yeah. as, far, as far as how they present and things like that. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, and we want to do right by them, right? We know we're learning more and more about doing the best practices we can for cats. And yep. so it's important to have these conversations and to mm-hmm. be thinking about well, how do we do the best for them yep. and making sure we're not overlooking things or just kind of leaning into, well, it must just be, right? Because mm-hmm. I think sometimes it's like, well, it must be behavioral because mm-hmm. it, couldn't, it couldn't be anything else. Right. And I think, you know, personally for me, I've had a geriatric dog with neurologic conditions and behavioral outcomes because of the neurologic condition. And I think right. as, a, as a client in that moment, it was really hard to navigate the specialty world in general right. because they, what do you do about these behavioral conditions that are caused by neurologic problems sure. and how do you bridge those gaps? How sure. do you work with the other specialties when there's obviously more than one thing going on with your guys? Right, yeah. We're blessed because we have such a good community at our hospital, but very, very common for me to assess a patient and then have one of the surgeons put a hand on them or a consult with medicine, you know, interesting you're talking about kind of chronic neurological conditions and behavioral changes because my other talk, which we're not talking about much, is on neuropathic pain. I think that's one of the most common things that we see, that you have animals that are chronically painful and they develop aggression or depression, anxiety, just kind of from that that chronic pain, very similar to what people, you know, go through. So, but yeah, I think it's always important. That's why I've always liked working in big specialty hospitals where you have everybody around you to get, you know, different different input. I think you get better management you know, of your, of your patients that way for sure. So, so if we have the ability to, to get them to somewhere where there is going to be multi-specialty and, mm-hmm. and, and, but I think also just kind of creating that, that expectation of 
we ha we may have multiple specialties that need to be involved in. Of course, you know, I think that chronic pain that is interesting, and I'd love to talk more about that lecture, and we'll we'll have to have you back for it because that 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 chronic pain aspect. I'm not sure we always address that or think about that, mm -hmm. and the depression and the anxiety that can actually result. And mm -hmm. um, I think we kind of think in our head, well, it could be this, and why wouldn't it be this? But right. then what? Right. So just you know, I mean, off the cuff a little bit, and it, you know, you can summarize in your lecture here that you you know you've got the microphone, say what you like. Yeah. But, you know, what is that? What what is the bottom line there with those guys? What with the the neuro pain? How are you helping those guys and guiding GP? Yeah. So there's a 50 minute lecture that I will go over all of those <laughs> yeah. things. But I think uh, probably most important thing with those guys is to see if you can figure out where it's coming from. Yeah. You know, and what's what's so different about neuropathic pain compared to to normal like noxious pain is that it's a maladaptive process. The neurological system is damaged and it takes over and it transmits pain when pain shouldn't be there. And so, and it just propagates itself over time. And so if you can figure out kind of where it's coming from in the first place and try to treat that problem, but also you have to come at that pain from multiple different angles, multiple different drugs. We do a lot of acupuncture and other adjunctive therapies um, to kind of try to come at the receptors inside the nervous system for di from different angles. And, you know, some of the medications that we're using too in treating pain, they're also reducing anxiety. And yeah. so it's really having a very global look at how you're going to treat, you know, treat those guys. So yeah. mm -hmm. just great advice from you guys in, in, in general. And I love that we can do better by our patients and, and to, you know, I mean, make, make things better for them and, and be thinking of it more comprehensively. If you're already reading Clinician's Brief, why not get credit for it? Get affordable, race-approved CE from Clinician's Brief content you trust without leaving your desk. You can track your earned hours, receipts, and certificates and see the latest available courses at cliniciansbrief.com backslash CE. Get started today. I'm going to kind of put you on the spot just a little bit with our, our keep it brief segment, but not a lot of pressure. We never really do keep it brief, so don't mm -hmm. feel like you have to. But how do you recommend practitioners make confident treatment choices when managing these cases without specialty diagnostics? You know, mm -hmm. if they don't have access or the client is unwilling, what are the best, you know, just drill it down to the top, like five into mm -hmm. getting the best outcomes? As far as diagnostics and stuff to do. So, yeah, yeah I mean, I think um, your basics, I mean, blood work, thyroid, radiographs, you know, so some of the things you're going to be worried about, you can, you rule out pretty easily just on those kind of routine diagnostics. And then the other way I think I tell is I always tell people that sometimes we're using treatments as a diagnostic tool, you know, so if you start them on certain therapies, see if they get better or worse. You know, if you have a patient coming in and you're not sure if they're having seizures or not, and you start them on an anticonvulsant and there's no change, probably they're not seizures, you know, or if you start them on anti-inflammatory and there's no change, probably not an inflammatory process. So I think the most important with the thing with these guys is to, to monitor them, to follow them up and make sure you're seeing them back, repeating their exams, and to just kind of tweak their, their therapy over time. So again, it's going back to what are those most likely things? What do you expect? How would those diseases progress? And then how are they responding, you know, to different treatments, you know, that you have? If you suspect a dog has a tumor and you start them on meds and they get better for a little bit, but then suddenly they're dramatically 
getting worse, probably a bad tumor, you know, versus one where they get better and stay stable for a period of time. Maybe not a tumor, maybe a disc or maybe a tumor that's more slow growing. And so you're just always tweaking things, you know, as you go along. So I think that's great though. Create the expectation and then just have them following up. Look, I'm going to see you back regularly. Mm -hmm. We're just going to stay on top of this and right, right, right. we'll stay in front of it the best that we can and yep. keep it here as long as we can. Exactly. The whole goal is improving their quality of life, right? For as long as possible. So that's kind of coming back into some of those like neuropathic pain management as well as, you know, what can we do to improve your quality of life? You know, so I send a lot of patients to acupuncture, lots of different multimodal drug therapy to just try to improve their quality of life for as long as possible. So. Yep. And I love that you're talking about that. We're having a, an interview later on today and talking some of those uh, complementary therapies. And I'm mm -hmm. a huge fan. And I love that you're also talking about that with something as high level and fascinating and science-based as neurology, mm. that you're saying all of these therapies work together. We all work together as a team. There's room mm. for everybody. And it's mm -hmm. like, it's literally about best patient outcomes and mm -hmm. quality of life. Yeah. That's what we're here for. Yep. Right. And that's how we keep clients happy, patients happy. Yep. Thank you so much. I, yeah, I, I love that you, you've had this conversation. Thank you for sitting down with me. I know yeah. you have a very busy conference. Yep. I wish you the best of luck today at your lectures. And I'll swing in and see them if I can. This is great information and we look forward to having you back. Perfect. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's Thank been you. Fun. <laughs> Take care. Thanks again to today's guest for joining us and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. We appreciate if you leave us all the stars. You can listen to podcasts as well on our website at cliniciansbrief.com backslash podcasts. You can find us at facebook.com backslash cliniciansbrief, on Twitter at cliniciansbrief, and on Instagram at clinicians.brief. You can also drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief, the podcast is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ustry, sound by Randall Stupka, hosted by me, Becky Mosser, with special thanks to production assistant, Michelle Moncrez.